We are in part 14 of our Empowered Church series, walking through the book of Acts line by line, and today's message is entitled, Heart Check. So I'm going to give you the fill in the blank here in just a moment, but I have a question for you. 2023 is the year of what? Power. Yeah, it's the year of power here at Bridgeway. And when we talk about humans and power, it gets a little bit sketchy, but we're talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about we want the presence of God to be rich in this place. Because when the presence of God is here and he is free to do as he wishes, it changes the dynamics. As a matter of fact, when you have a thick presence of God, you realize God can do healing whether you're praying about it or not. That you can just walk into the environment and you can go from despair to hope. You can walk into the environment and go from loneliness to feeling fulfilled. That God can do the miraculous. That whether somebody is preaching an altar call or not, people can get saved. And it's rather attractive. It's almost intoxicating to be able to be in a worship service where you feel so close to God. Like while you're singing his praise, you feel like his presence is around you. The idea that angels would be in our midst, the idea that miracles would break out, that there would be healings, and there would be people being set free from bondage. When you have the presence of God and the thickness of His presence and the Spirit moving, it is absolutely stunning. And that's what we want here. We desperately want more of God, more of God, more of God. We definitely want a move of God. We definitely want that connection with the Lord. And to be honest with you, it's attractive for a reason. It's kind of hard once you experience the intensity like that to go back to normal life. It's really hard when you're a part of a worship service that's on fire and then another one that is not. So you will tend to go, man, I want more of that. I want more of that. And it's supposed to be attractive. It's supposed to draw you forward. It's supposed to lead you by the love in your heart to say, I want more of that. But there's a shadow side to it. The shadow side to it is that sometimes we crave the experience more than the one who provided the experience. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's like, man, I want to I wanna kill her worship service, so I'm going to try to go wherever I feel tingles. Ah, hold on. Is worship for you or is worship for him? You see, sometimes we do good Christian things, but ultimately we may or may not be doing it for the right reasons. There's always going to be kind of questionable choices, right? Because we're human beings. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is simply this. Motive matters. Motive matters. I'm going to share with you that I believe that God is doing mighty things. I'm going to close out with reminding you on what I think that God is doing here and getting us all on the same page. But as God continues to increase in our midst, motive matters. What are you finding so fascinating? Is it the stuff in God's hand or is it God's face? That you're enamored with. We are not to use him. We are to serve him. Should it be beautiful? Yes. Should it be captivating? Yes. But should be it all be about us? No. I'm about to lead you into a bizarre story in the book of Acts. 
that talks a lot about motives. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 8? Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. If you're brand new to Scripture, go ahead and drop your Bible open in the middle. Go to the right. You're going to go quite a ways down there. You're going to hit Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. All right? Then you can find it, Acts chapter 8, verse 4. And I'm going to recap a little bit of what we've been talking to, talking about the last two weeks, and that is simply this. There were the big dogs of the brand new Christian movement that Jesus called out in person. They had been with him since the beginning, and he called out 12 of them. We call them the apostles. Well, along the way, as the church got more complicated and it kept growing, they needed a new level of leadership that was underneath the apostles, and so they ended up selecting out seven men whom we now call the deacons. Deacon is a fancy way of calling helper guy. So we got seven helper guys, but these helper guys are on fire. These guys are brilliant. They are moving in the Holy Spirit with signs and wonders. No, they're not apostles, but that doesn't matter. The power of the Holy Spirit is upon them, and great and mighty things are happening all over the place. Two of those gentlemen are Stephen and Philip. We covered for the last two weeks Stephen. For this week and next week, we're covering Philip. But what we need to know is that last time when we were talking about Stephen, we began to realize that no matter how wonderful of a man this guy was, no matter how much he was rolling in the spirit, the more he did Jesus stuff, the more a target was placed on his back. And we realized that there is such a thing as spiritual warfare. We talked about it a lot. And spiritual warfare says that we have three enemies, world, flesh, devil. World, flesh, devil. We talked about that, and we were saying those things provide us resistance, and they make the Christian life difficult. Well, sure enough, we even watched that some religious leaders came after Stephen, and they ended up stoning him to death. And we said, man, we've got to be ready that if God calls our name and says, hey, you're on, I need you to represent me in very tense situations, we need to be able to say, yes, Lord, here I am, send me. That man was stoned, and a new persecution broke out against the Christian church, and it started to scatter Christian believers all over the rest of Israel. It used to be primarily a Jerusalem thing. It's about to go nationwide. That's where we pick up our story today. All right, Acts chapter 8, verse 4. We'll read a little bit, talk about it, and then we'll read a little bit more. Here we go. Now, those who were scattered by this new persecution, went about preaching the word of God. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, which means Messiah. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs or the miracles that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. All right, let's go ahead and pause. Really, what we're talking about is that a massive revival broke out among the Samaritan people. So let's dig into that a little bit. All right, so first of all, it says, those that were scattered preached the word of God. Why is that significant? Because really, 
Jesus Christ said, hey, when I go away, I need you to be my body. I need you to do what I do. I need you to be what I would be. That everywhere I send my believers, I need you to be the presence of God in that location. If somebody is in need of something from heaven, you're the primary point person. You are the primary conduit. I need you to go out and set people free. I need you to go out and I need you to heal people. I need you to make sure that if I was there, the same type of things are going on. I want you to tell them there's good news. I want you to tell them that God loves them. I want you to be able to share with them that this is all more real than what we can see. But you see, that only works, the whole scattering Christians thing, it only works if Christians act like Christians. Yeah? Like, are we making that difference? Are we being the salt and light that we were designed to be? Because scattering a bunch of Christians who are still anonymous, who still do not have any speaking up for the Lord, that do not operate in the power of the Lord, are just more people taking up air. So this scattering was part of a plan of God to advance the kingdom. So my question for us, is the kingdom being advanced through us in our areas? Could be in our schools, could be in our workplaces, could be with our friends, could be wherever. Are we bringing the presence of God into those locations? Because when we do, God can bring about revival. That's what happened here. So it centers on a guy named Philip. He's one of the seven. So he ends up going to Samaria, which is actually a city. Now, this is where we need to do a quick history lesson, or you're not going to understand the power of what just occurred, and it's a setup for the rest of the story. So here we go, history lesson. So we're going to go all the way back in history, uh, 1,500 years, and, and we're going to go back to the greatest king of Israel outside of Jesus. Who is known as the greatest king that Israel has ever had? King David. How do we know that? Well, his star is still on their flag. He's kind of a big deal, right? Now, King David, a man after God's own heart, he was awesome, and he had a son, a son whom the Bible calls the wisest man who ever lived on the face of the earth. His name is Solomon. So we have David and Solomon, two of the greatest kings that Israel has ever seen. The problem is, is once Solomon hands off to his lineage, they're all a bunch of yahoos. Like literally, it goes from train wreck to train wreck and just messed up people, and all of a sudden, very rapidly, the nation splits into two. All of a sudden, it's north versus south. The north hate the south. The south hate the north, right? Not like America knows anything about this, right? This is very similar. It's funny how history repeats itself, yes? So sure enough, they have the north and the south, and they're kind of on their own tracks with God. Neither one of them are doing awesome, but the north is way worse, okay? So they're on this track with God. Well, what ends up happening is when you split the nation, who gets the holy city of Jerusalem, right? Because that's where the temple is, that's where the presence of God is. So everybody thought that Jerusalem is the coolest place ever. Many times during the year, Jews would travel down to Jerusalem to hang out at the temple. But what if you don't live in the south and you're a northerner? They don't want you around, you can't go there. So what do you do? You create your own capital, you create your own special place. And that was in the area and city of Samaria. As a matter of fact, the capital city became such a big deal 
the whole north was called Samaria. Okay, great. So what happened? Well, as they're going through their track, God kept warning them, hey, you guys, your kings are lame. As a matter of fact, you're not following me. You're not following me. You got to clear it up. You got to fix it. What the heck? What are you doing? Sending prophet after prophet after prophet. They're not listening to him. Eventually, God goes, enough is enough. And he takes out the north. Like he literally deports the vast majority of Jews. He has them attacked by the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC, moves them out of their land. If you want to terrify the Jewish people, remove them from their land. Their land is precious. They got deported. It's called the exile period. It means they were cast out. This was a terrible point in their history. Some Jews were left, not a ton. All the super powerful, rich ones, they all got moved out. Well, the problem with the Assyrian Empire is you can't just leave it open. Some other bad guy is going to run in there. So they would backfill it with other nations they've conquered. And now you've got a big kind of melting pot in the north. You've got Jews, non-Jews, they're marrying, they're connecting. All right. Well, then 150 years later, the South gets moved out. They too fell under God's judgment. They get kicked out. Much shorter time. They come back 70 years later and they go, all right, God's giving us a reset. We're going to be one nation again. We need to get our act together. So the leadership says, all right, I want all legitimate Jews line up right here. Everyone's like, what's a legitimate Jew? What do you like? I'm a real person, hi, right? And they're like, no, 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 like your mom and your dad, all your lineage, totally Jewish. They're like, well, no, my mom was Jewish, but my dad was from somewhere else, so I guess I'm like, half? Is that cool? No, that's not cool. Well, why not? You're not legit. You're a half-breed. Whoa, 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 whoa. What's up with that? I didn't ask for that. Yeah, but that's what you are. You're cut off. And they separated out, and only legit Jews were allowed. The problem with that is, what do you do if you're not part of the team? You feel very rejected. They went up north, centered in that area, and started creating their own camp where they used to live, right? Because they're like, well, my lineage and my history have been up here in the north. Even though the Jews came back, this is my territory, and they were called the Samaritans, those quasi-Jews. Now, what's interesting is they were in that land while the Jews were gone, so when the Jews came back, there was a bit of a land issue. It almost sounds like the Palestinian-Israeli conflict today, right? History repeating itself. It always goes the same way. Okay, well now, as the Jews got more numerous, that area of Samaritans got a little bit smaller, but there was so much ethnic racial tension. They hated each other because of all the past hurts and everything else. It was so intense that when the Jews traveled from north to south or south to north, they would go around the Samaritan area. They're like, I don't even want to touch their dirt. Like, this is really deep-seated hatred, okay? So, all of a sudden, we enter this story. Where did Philip go? He went to go minister in those other people's camp. Now, that means he was not interested in a wall of division. He was not interested in any ethnic lines. He was not interested. He's like, listen, 
Jesus is for everybody. Everybody gets to get saved. I don't care what history is. I'm telling you, I'm going to go bring the good news to God's people. That's how it works. So he goes in and he starts preaching and doing mighty miracles and this massive revival breaks out. It says that he preached the good news. What's the good news? You're like, oh, I know this one. It's the gospel. Well, that's just the definition of gospel. Gospel means good news. I mean, what's the content of it? Like if somebody said, tell me the gospel, what would you say? Because this is interesting. I'm not quite sure we get this right. So some Bible nerds like me would go, wait, wait, wait. Well, there's this point where Paul says, this is the gospel I preach to you, and he gives a list. He's like, all right, so Jesus Christ came, and then he lived the perfect life, and then he goes out publicly at ministry at 30, and then for three years he's ministering. He then ends up dying for the sins of the world on the cross. He's in the tomb on the third day, he rises again as the resurrected Lord, and now he's made an opportunity that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, that they might be saved, and it requires repentance of your sins, and, and it goes on and on and on, right? And then when he rose, he appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to all these other people, right? Okay, let's pause for a second. What if nobody knows what you're talking about? Like, at what point did you get lost there? Because if you are around it too much, you are simply checking off the countdown list with me. If you're newer to the faith, you're like, dude, you lost me a long time ago. And that's my problem. When your good news becomes confusing news, it's just kind of lame news. <laughs> Y'all tracking with me? When your good news is simply this, hey, I'm a Christian, you're a sinner. You're all going to hell, just so you know. Thankfully, God died for your sins. The only thing it's going to require is total surrender now. <laughs> You're like, uh, okay, so that went from good news to bad news really fast. Because I'm pretty sure I can't surrender totally right now. So you're telling me I'm doomed to hell. Thank you for that. That was encouraging. So it suddenly becomes not good news. So let me ask you again. What's the good news? The good news is not that you're a sinner. The good news is simply this. God sees you, God loves you, and he made a way so you could be together. That's good news. Once you get beyond that, you start to be adding details that may or may not be helpful in the moment. Good news needs to stay good news. What's the good news? Hope. That's the good news. So we hang on to that. When we do the good news and we demonstrate the power of God, all of a sudden you watched a revival break out and it says the city was full of joy. I'm not quite sure. Currently, even in modern day America, and we live with a Christian hangover, not only, I mean, in this area, I don't know how many cities are like, I want more churches, more churches, more churches. Man, if I could only have more churches, man, I need more Christians in my area. Man, we don't have a whole lot of hope. We don't have a whole lot of help. Where are all the Christians? I'm not seeing that happen, but that's what happened here. As a matter of fact, that's what happened in Jesus's ministry. Do you remember this? Because here's where we get things a little bit kind of messed up in our heads. We get this weird persecution mindset. Oh, the Jews hated Jesus. That's not true. 
the Jews were the ones yelling, Hosanna, laying down palm branches in front of the donkey in which he was riding in as their king. Christianity started all Jewish. Don't tell me that the Jewish people were against Jesus. His ministry was so popular that many times he was going to get crushed, so he had to get in a boat and back up just to talk to the masses. The Bible says multitudes followed him. Sinners and tax collectors and, and needy people lined the streets. Same thing happened with Philip. As a matter of fact, the city, the area loved their Christians. So where was the persecution coming from? It was actually only coming from two small select groups. Who were they? The Jewish religious leaders. Why did they have a problem with it? because they were the gatekeepers of how religion was supposed to go, and this new Christian thing was not fitting in their paradigm. They got mad. Rome got mad only because of one reason. They believed their emperor was God, and all of a sudden Christians came in and said, hey, I'm not really into the political thing. There is only one God, and it's not your emperor. And they were like, what did you just say? And they got mad. Outside of that, a lot of Christians were really welcomed by their environment. Why? Because they had good news, freedom, and help. That is not bad news. That's really good news. So shouldn't we have more of that impact, right? Are we going to have some pushback? Yes, but watch why. That's a key. All right, so let's go back to the story. It says this, they heard his message, but then they saw the mighty miracles he was doing. And then it cites something. It's like, yeah, so he healed paralyzed people. You're like, that's kind of niche, right? You know what I'm saying? You're like, oh, I have a, <laughs> I have a cough. He's like, hey, that's not my thing. He's like, he's like, can you move your limbs? You're like, yeah. And he's like, then I can't deal with you. You know, and he, every, like every little Christian had a card of what they could heal, right? They're like, hey, uh, bubonic plague guy, he's coming next week. Right now we have a sale on paralysis. Paralysis, anybody need paralysis, right? You're like, that's not how it goes. That's weird. What do you mean he was just healing paralyzed people? No, no, no. It was an example following the line that says, not only did he preach the gospel, but he did signs and wonders. What's a sign? it means it's pointing to something. It can't be a sign if no one can see it. So what did it highlight? There are certain miracles that are outward and there are certain miracles that are internal. The internal ones, nobody fully knows if they're legit yet. Does that make sense? When you see someone that's paralyzed and then they can walk, you're like, oh, dang, God just showed up. But if I was to pray over you and your liver was healed, how would we know that? You're like, oh, I totally got healed. You're like, you're bogus. You're just making that up because no one can see it. So it was simply saying, as an act of demonstrating that God was in their midst, some of the outward miracle healings were paralysis. Cool? Then he did what? Exorcisms. Anybody been heavily involved in exorcisms this week? Anyone? <laughs> Anyone, right? Right? It says, and many unclean spirits came out with a loud voice. Well, first of all, that sounds awfully freaky, does it not? You know, some, you know you're just trying to hang out and do your devotion. Ah! You're like, whoa, what the, where did that come from? 
right? And, and here's the interesting thing. Why, uh, there's a clash of kingdoms, right? They didn't want to go out, and they're being told to go out, and so they're just trying to cause a problem. They're trying to cause disruption. But here's what's interesting, is that in the Middle East, even to this day, they are much more comfortable with mess. It is only in European nations where we do church like this, what is it? Well, we're all going to be in neat little rows. Everybody stay quiet. Only one person's talking at a time. Please don't interrupt anybody else. We all are in our cutest little outfits. Okay, now, the problem with that is when all of a sudden normal ministry happens, and by the way, normal ministry is super messy, and normal supernatural ministry is super weird. When that hits, it's highlighted. Oh my gosh, did you hear at church? That one person was on the ground and they were like totally knocked out in the Lord. <gasps> I don't know what's happening. In the Middle East, that's called Tuesday. <laughs> you understand what I'm talking about? Like there's literally, in most of their environments, you got kids all over the place, you got animals walking through church, you got all kinds of chaos going on, right? Because it was just very grassroots. I, I had this experience in Uganda, I think I've shared this with you in the past. So I was in Uganda preaching at a church and there was no doors on uh, the doorways. So you could just kind of walk in, it was just a big, huge hall. And so I was in there and I was preaching on the message of the demoniac who Jesus kicks the demons out and they go into the pigs. Do you guys remember this story? So I was like, and then he shouted out, he said, get out. All of a sudden this pig outside goes, Rah! and I was like, whoa, <laughs> totally caught me off guard. And God's like, yes, for an illustration. Now, it's, it, if I was a pig, I wouldn't hang out by church, personally. <laughs> I'd be like, I ain't going in there, man. Those people are weird, right? But it was really weird that they're yelling. But the point was, there's a pig right outside. Okay, so that's how ministry happens in a lot of parts of the world. But all of a sudden, so to them, it was kind of like, oh, loud noises, people yelling, things happening. Well, they're being set free. I don't really care. That's normal to them. Why does it call them unclean spirits? Why don't you just call it what it is? What is it? It's a demon. All right, why unclean? Well, this is a religious way of describing part of their character. So, we call heavenly beings, whether they are or not, technically, we call them angels, right? Because angel means messenger, right? Sent one. You go, okay, that's cool. Um, are they all that? Well, sometimes we talk about the cherubim and the seraphim, and they look totally different. And then you have warrior angels, and you have messenger angels. So they're kind of a complex group. They're heavenly beings, but we call them angels. Well, when there was a big war in heaven, when Lucifer launched a rebellion, one-third of those went on his team. Well, if they were angels with God, now they are fallen angels. Does that make sense? And what do you call something that is set apart for God's usage? You call it holy. What happens if you're no longer that? You are unholy, and ritually, you are called unclean. It's simply talking about their history. Unclean demons were being cast out. Why was he casting demons out? Because demons create bondage and hurt and we should not want that. You go, yeah, but it even said, like many came out. Why does it say all? Because not everyone wants them gone. And you just, that's a sad reality that many of us would rather 
have the hurt that we know than strange new freedom. Well, so as he's casting these out, uh, in part 23, we're going to get into this again and go a little bit deeper, but, but I just want to highlight, whenever I talk about demons, automatically people have questions, right? But, you know, are demons legit? Here's the answer. Yep. Here's the other one. How did they get them? And you don't even want to know academically. You want to know you didn't accidentally get one. <laughs> Isn't that right? You're asking the question. You're like, any chance that they were at Walmart and they were in, <laughs> and they were in aisle 10 and they were like just buying detergent and then whoosh, it came in. You're like, I swear, Walmart has a lot of stuff. <laughs> okay, that, that's not how it works. Okay, what's interesting is the Bible's rather quiet on how people get demons. It's a lot more vocal on how you get them out. Because they're like, I don't really care how they got in. Just get them out. Like, we're not dealing with this anymore. Like, that's no good, right? Now, we could talk about, and when we had more time, we can talk about how occultic activity opens things up, generational issues, trauma, sin stuff, right? We can talk about how demons kind of get drawn towards people, right? But really, the next question is what everybody wants to know here, especially if you're a Christian. Hey, I'm a Christian. Can I get possessed? Right? I mean, that's the other question. Can Christians be possessed by a demon? Right? Because many of us saw poltergeist. Many of us saw the exorcist, and we're a little concerned. Okay? Now, the majority of what you know about the demonic is, is unfortunately Hollywood, but this stuff is real and legit. So there's been a debate throughout Christian circles for thousands of years on whether or not Christians can be possessed. So here's how we view it at Bridgeway. There is a significant difference between possession and oppression. Now, here's how I define those two. Possession means full and complete takeover. So it's actually what we keep praying that the Holy Spirit would do. Is that not right? Holy Spirit, come into my life and fill me completely. I want you in charge. I want you driving the car. We're actually asking for the Holy Spirit to possess us. That's actually what we're doing. Now, it's all awesome and lighthearted and good because it's God. But if somebody had that in another power, we would have a problem. You're no longer driving the car. That is what possession means. Oppression means that demons, you can pick up critters, right? Like you can have them in portions of your lives. There can be strongholds and footholds. There can be areas where demons are messing with you. There's things that they can whisper into your head. There's stuff that they can try to attach to. There's, there's drama, but it's a little bit different than possession, right? Because there, you go, well, okay, I, I, I get that. I, oh, I kind of get that. <laughs> um, I don't get that. Okay, so... <laughs> Okay, let me give you another analogy. So, so here's the thing. You guys know the difference between addiction and compulsion? Okay, so compulsion means you really, really want to do something, and it's really hard not to. Okay, that's a compulsion. Addiction means you can't do otherwise. You are driven. You're no longer driving the car. The addiction has so taken over, it's calling the shots. That's why you need help from the outside. Does that make sense? Okay, that's kind of the possession, oppression issue. All right, so can Christians be possessed? Okay, once again, we have a stance on this. 
And the stance is, I see no biblical evidence that Christians can be possessed. As a matter of fact, it says that when you get saved, you get the Holy Spirit as a seal. That means there is no way you can have a holistic takeover if the Holy Spirit's like, dude, that's my chair. Like, you don't drive here. I hate how you drive. I drive. You know what I mean? So the Holy Spirit's not going to give up his driving chair. Now, whether or not you're picking up critters and putting them in the back seat, <laughs> we're going to have some questions, right? That I would call oppression. So as a matter of fact, here at Bridgeway, we have two ministries that deal with this. We have a deliverance ministry and we have an inner healing ministry. Both of those are to say, we would love to meet with you and holistically make sure you're free in every way that you don't need to fear. If you want it gone, it needs to get gone. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Like the Bible says, greater is he that is within us than he that is within the world. The Bible says that who the sun sets free will be free indeed. The Bible will consistently say, Satan is no match for Jesus. When Jesus shows up, the darkness flees. Does that make sense? So our ministries are dedicated to praying through, interceding, and defending you so that you might have the freedom that you so badly desire. That goes on right now. You're like, so there's like weird demon things going on? Here's the answer. Yep. Okay, moving on. Here we go. <laughs> Pick it up in verse 9. Okay, and then it says, but, which means things are going awesome, but there's going to be a little bit of a hiccup. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Okay, let's pause. This is not at all the same concept as modern-day entertainers that do magic and illusions. That are simply fun tricks to make people go, wow. It's got nothing to do with it. Completely separate issues. This concept comes from the Greek word magos, which actually has its roots in the magi. You guys remember the magi? Those are what you call them the wise men in the Christmas story? Right? Those were the ones that came and gave gold and frankincense and myrrh to baby Jesus. All right. So the Magi, it just means historically there were spiritual wisdom people. It was all mixed together. Sometimes they were into astronomy. Sometimes it was astrology. Sometimes it was the black arts. Sometimes it was all completely science. It was all mixed together in one big ball. Well, along the way, it started getting narrowed down, and first it would refer to people that were charlatans and tricking other people, and then it ultimately kind of landed on the concept of sorcerer. So a sorcerer is anyone that is using supernatural power that does not come from heaven, right? Because you got to say, do angels have the power to do stuff? Yep. So when they do it, we consider it a good thing. That's God. Well, if angels can do stuff, can't fallen angels do stuff? So Satan has power. He can do all kinds of stuff. So there's another power source in the universe. But if it's not God, it's not good. Does that make sense? So it became rejected and it became judged in the Bible. You do not mess with any power sources outside of God. That is a no-no. 
Well, this guy, he doesn't know anything about God, so he's rolling around, and he became famous in church history. He was known as Simon Magus or Simon Magus, and it just means Simon the Sorcerer. Okay, so this guy shows up, and he's a big deal. He's always amazed people. He's very influential. Well, then, notice when Philip comes to town with the revival, things get tricky. All right, pick it up in verse 11. And the Samaritans paid attention to Philip, because, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, continued following the ministry of Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. All right, now this sounds incredibly positive. You now have an influential occultic leader who gets saved. Because what does the Bible say? If you believe in your heart, you will be saved. He did that. As a matter of fact, there's other passages that talk about baptism being tied with repentance. It says, if you believe and you are baptized, you'll be saved. He's checking all the boxes. He believed, he got baptized. And now he's following Philip around. He gave up his job, and he's now a disciple of Philip. That sounds awesome. There's one caveat. Did you notice that last phrase? What does it say? It says something rather interesting. Is It says, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Huh. So why is he following Philip around? Well, that's probably complicated. He probably loved the idea that he's a brand new Christian, but the fact that the Bible highlights out his interest in the signs and wonders, you start to realize he's bringing some of his baggage from his past right into Christianity. What does he spend his whole life doing? Power, money, influence. When he got saved, he surrendered partially, but he's still dealing with what? Power, money, and influence. And he's like, dude, I have been legit like the most powerful guy around, but whatever Philip's rolling in, man, that is intense. That's for real. Well, that's really attractive. So he's like, I got to see more of this. This is crazy cool. Is that okay? Is it all right to come into Christianity with mixed motives? Well, I can't imagine you would ever do otherwise, right? I mean, when you're coming in, never knowing the Lord, you only know you. You only know what you only know. You can't have other than mixed motives. When people followed Jesus, some of them followed him because he gave them food. Some of them followed him because he healed them. Some of them followed him because he cast out demons. Some of them followed him because he's a great teacher. There was mixed motives all the time. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that to some degree, every single one of us have mixed motives for why we go to church. But here's the deal. When you're brand new to Christianity, of course, you're going to have all kinds of baggage. That's called normal. But hopefully, as you are purified in him growing, letting him transform you, letting him break things off, letting him set you free, you're watching a progression to where you're starting to want him more than the stuff he gives you. Does that make sense? That's called maturing. 
All right. So this guy comes in. He's like, oh, this is fascinating. I love this stuff. Okay, cool. Now, we're going to pause his story according to the Bible. Verse 14 says, now let me give you another picture of something going on, and those two are going to join. All right, here we go. Verse 14. Now, when the big dogs at Jerusalem, that's the apostles, heard that the Samaritans, remember that's not a crew they like, had received the word of God and had a revival, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down from Jerusalem and prayed for for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. All right. This is a very loaded passage. We're going to go through it rather rapidly. Who showed up? Peter and John. Why those guys? Peter is the de de facto leader of the Christian church. They needed to know if this new revival was legit, especially with those people, right? Isn't that what we always do? If they're not our crew, they are those people? When in fact, how does God look at it? There's just people, right? If you're not God, you're just people. That means we're all in the same boat, (laughs) yeah? So they sent some guys to see if it would be legit. And Peter and John kind of always hung out together right? And it's interesting because when John rolls into Samaria, this is not the first time he's been there. As a matter of fact, if we go back, and I, and I don't know this to be true, uh, meaning the same people were around, I don't know how many years it was, but the last time the Bible has John in Samaria, it didn't go awesome. In Luke chapter 9, he and his brother, who was his best friend, James, remember the inner crew of Jesus was Peter, James, and John. Two of them were brothers. James ended up getting murdered for the faith. So really, it became Peter and John that were the partners, right? But when James and John were together, they actually had a nickname. Anybody remember their nickname? They were the Sons of Thunder. Now, you don't get the name Son of Thunder if you're shy and demure. You get the name Sons of Thunder when you are hardcore. Like you are either loud or you are intense or you are rolling heavy in the spirit. Whatever it is, these guys were all in. And everyone was like, oh, dang, here come the Sons of Thunder. Well, sure enough, they're on a trip with Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, how about we stop over in Samaria? I can do a little bit of ministry there on our way to Jerusalem. I know we're doing the Jewish thing, but maybe we can stop by and help them out a little bit. So his guys go on ahead of him. Peter and John walk up and they're like, hey, sup, Samaritans, right? They're like, what do you want? They're like, well, we have the Messiah, (laughs) just saying. Anyway, so we have the Messiah and we thought we would set up and maybe do a little revival, tent revival here for you. They're like, where are you going next? They're like, well, actually, we're just on our way to Jerusalem. We're doing a kind of a Jewish tour. And he's like, no, we're not interested. I'm sorry, what'd you say? I said, we're not interested. Go do your Jewish thing, right? I don't know if you remember or not, we're Samaritans. So we don't need your stuff. We don't need your help. Move along. Well, James and John were not cool with that. And they got livid. They were like, how dare you? You would reject the son of God? Like we are here to set up, we're trying to help you. What, do you think you can handle everything on your own? What, just because we're Jews, you're not going to accept the Son of God coming into your territory? You know what? I've had enough of this. Jesus, we will pray right now and burn them all alive. Well, that kind of escalated. 
They literally asked Jesus, can we call down fire and burn everyone alive? Now, these talk about intense, right? That was the last time they were there. <laughs> so you got to imagine they watch John walk in. They're like, don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. Oh, my gosh, that guy's weird. Uh, <laughs> right? And then Peter and John are like, can we pray for you? They're like, no. No, you cannot. I will have Peter pray, not that guy. <laughs> right? A little nerve-wracking. So they come in, and they're like, hey, did you guys get the Holy Spirit? They're like, what? Did you guys get like this, this fire, this intensity where you could do like miracles and stuff? You saw what Philip was doing. That's what we got. Uh, no, I didn't know that that was a thing. They're like, no, it's totally a thing. When we, we call ours Pentecost, right? I mean, we had this, there's like mighty rushing wind. There was tongues of fire on our head. And we're speaking in tongues. It was crazy. And then we, we've been able to do like different miracles and stuff because now we have the Holy Spirit inside us. Do you have that? They're like, uh-uh. They're like, okay, well, we'll pray for you. And they lay hands on them, and the Holy Spirit hits. What happened? The Bible doesn't say. But they knew in that moment everybody got filled with the Holy Spirit. So there must have been some outward sign. Something must have got weird. Everybody knew in that moment they received the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives and the power that goes along with it. All right. Super cool. Sounds great. How did they do it? They lay the hands on. Laying hands on is what? The principle of? impartation. What does impartation mean? It means transference. I have something, I want to touch you, and it goes from me to you. That's how it works. That's why we lay hands on people. All right, cool. But here's the big question. Wait, wait, wait. So you're telling me that you can get all the Jesus salvation stuff, but then you don't get the Holy Spirit? Like, it's not a combo pack? Like, you have to get a separate one? Are you telling me that there's a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit where I don't get the Holy Spirit until I have a little special prayer over me? Well, that's kind of weird because doesn't that kind of leave like, well, there are some Christians, buddy, you're saved, but you're kind of a meh Christian. <laughs> like, we're rolling strong, you're rolling like meh. Okay, wouldn't that be a little bit weird? Okay, so it brings up this theological question. Now, I have to say that there are denominations based on this premise. They are based on the premise right here in black and white. It says they did not have the Holy Spirit. They needed a second prayer for baptism. You go, well, then it seems pretty open and shut. I disagree. Here is our perspective at Bridgeway. And that is, when you examine the information in the rest of Scripture, it says you always get a combo pack. Here's why. Because you can't actually be fully saved without the presence of the Holy Spirit. So when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says when you heard the word of truth and received it, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is literally what He does to save you. You can't be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit inside you. You're like, yeah, 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 no, no, no. It's different because they're talking about power. No, 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 hold on. That's not the word they used. The word they used is baptized. Baptized means identified with. You are not identified with him if you're not baptized in him. So that means you don't have a partnership with him. No, no, no. Every Christian has, that's a true Christian, has a partnership with the Holy Spirit, or you're not even a Christian in the first place. So, of course, you have Him dwelling in you. It's what a Christian is. 
But what about the power part? Ah, that's different. The power part comes, according to the book of Acts, in fillings, where the Holy Spirit falls fresh for a new assignment. That's when He lights you up again, gets you fired up again, and then you go out and you serve Him, and then it dissipates. Then you get fired up again, lit up again, and you go out and do your assignment, and it dissipates. You're like, that's dumb. I wish you would just give me like a little like fast pass right? Like I always have it. I get the Holy Spirit power and I just keep it in my pocket all the time. Here's the problem, manna. What was the principle of manna in the Old Testament? They would only get daily bread. Why? That's not what they wanted. They wanted a storehouse. What did they get? Daily bread. What was the purpose of daily bread? Relationship. The minute you have everything you need, you walk away and do your own thing. Are you telling me that the Holy Spirit is not going to require constant check-ins to get stuff done? Why? Because it was never about you having power. It was about you having relationship. You go, I don't understand. But if that's not how it works, why did it work that way here? I'm going to tell you why. Because if the Samaritans would have got their own Pentecost away from the Jews, there would be two churches on the planet. And God was not going to allow that to happen. The Jews would never legitimize something they weren't involved in. So what did God do? I'm going to hold out, hold out, hold out. Hey, Peter and John, come here for a second. I want you to lay hands on them. Lord, I pray, wham! That's all I was waiting for. Because now you were a part of it and you now know there's one church. There's not two churches. There's one. You're going to find out in the book of Acts, he does it again with the Gentiles. There's a pattern here. Does that make sense? All right, let's keep moving forward. It says, verse 18, now when Simon, that's the sorcerer guy, saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone in whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Pause. Is that okay? Mm. Now, I'm a softie. So I look at this guy, and I'm like, he's a new believer. All right, he's a little stupid. Okay, and you know what? I mean, he brings in baggage. That's all he knows. All he knows is power and money and stuff like that. So you should gently correct this guy and go, dude, what the heck? Okay, we don't do that. That's not how things work around here, right? And you would assume that it was kind of like, oh, he's growing up. Let's see how Peter reacts. Verse 20, but Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part in this ministry nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that even if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Oh, snap. What? Simon's hair's blown back, right? And he's like, ah, puts his wallet back. <laughs> what the heck? Peter just unloads on this guy. Why? That seems awfully harsh, right? Now, once again, it could be Peter being Peter. He has a bit of a history of over-exaggerating things. Or is he tracking on something with the Holy Spirit that we're not? I don't know. I don't know. Interestingly, 
what is he trying to say? What do you think was ticking him off so much? Because something got him. And it sounds like it really centered around the issue of what? Money. And here's the thing. It sounds like Peter was saying, dude, how dare you? Is that really what you think we're doing here? What, all this is a joke to you, that this is a matter of money, that we're doing this ministry as a job? Every one of us are going to be murdered. Do you understand how many people we've already seen die? And what, you think this is an add-on in your life? You're going to what? Take a little bit of power. Hey, get a little bit of a back tool belt. You're going to run around and make your own ministry. Oh, you get to be great again. Is that what you want? You think you can buy this stuff? You think that God can be bought? You think that somehow you're in control, you're in charge? No, listen to me, my friend. You need to surrender right now and repent because your baggage owns you. And if you keep going like this, you got nothing in your future. Now, that's still harsh, but I think we understand that a little bit more, right? But notice Simon's reaction. This is interesting. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Sounds like he's pretty sorry. Sounds like he's scared out of his mind. Is that correct? All right. How did it go? Here we go. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The end. Anybody have like a closure problem here? <laughs> right? You're like, dude, what happened? Did they pray for him? Did he get uh, What happened? Did he get forgiven? Did he, did he not? It's like, you know, it's like, hey, may you die with your money. You're going to go to hell. God may not even forgive you. Oh, no, you got to save me. You got to pray for me. And seen. You're like, dang it, that was not cool, right? Interestingly enough, he figures quite a bit in church history. A lot of early church fathers wrote about this guy, became kind of famous. Almost everything written about him is negative. He was considered a Christian, but he kind of created his own crew, his own group. And they were kind of known as, well, their theology's sketchy, and oh, they kind of oppose Peter and Paul at times. And some of the stuff said about him may not even be legit or accurate. Some of it might be. But he's never seen in a fully positive light, which is pretty sad. But what's interesting to me is even back in the day, there was a debate over whether or not when Peter went after him, Peter helped the church dodge a bullet by not including him in leadership because he was a bad guy. Other people believed maybe it was Peter's reaction that sent him that direction. When you're rejected and hit that hard, maybe you don't want to be part of the team. What's the truth? I don't know. It's lost in tradition. The very essence is that there was power in play and motive really matters. What was Simon looking for? Anytime we continually use God for what it does for us, chase his power and experience, oh, there's another revival. I'm going to go run to that revival. I'm going to go run to that revival. If you're going to be in the presence of God, beautiful. If you're going to receive a fresh move of God so you can bring it back home, praise the Lord. But if you're a power chaser, that's going to be a problem. So we close with this. I truly believe 
that God is doing something in our midst. I truly believe that miracles are on the increase. I'm watching a hunger and a thirst and a leaning into prayer. I'm beginning to see things happen. I'm beginning to see lots of movement. I'm watching his intense presence intensify even more. In my estimation, and I could be wrong, but I'm watching a wave begin to move, and I'm watching him begin to move at Bridgeway. So I want to make sure that we have this talk as a family to get on the same page. Here's the page. I'm not interested in a show. I'm interested in effective ministry. And what that means is things may get intense. Things may get weird. That's fine. But we're not interested in flash. We're interested in true Holy Spirit power so that lives may be changed and God might be glorified. We can never get off that focus. It's about him, not us. And no matter what we do, no matter how bizarre it gets, no matter how much breaks out, no matter how much power we see, our eyes always remain fixed on Jesus Christ. Is that correct? Because we never want the power issue to distort our heart in any way. Keep it on true north. Jesus is king, not us. Amen? Amen. Praise God. So let's pray for that. Holy Spirit, we say yes to all that you have. We say yes. Would you anoint us afresh? Would you fire us up and give us your empowerment? May this be a place of signs, wonders, and miracles for the sake, not of show, but for the sake that people might be healed, that people might be set free, that lives might be transformed to the glory of God. That, Lord, that we might be able to be those that say, our King is alive. You are right here among us. Your Holy Spirit walks among us. And everyone that we minister to can receive a connection with you. God, we pray for salvations. We pray for healings. We pray for demonic freedom. We pray that you might be able to move without any hindrance in our midst. And God, we want to be those that say, yes, Lord, here I am. Send me that you might be lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.